All right, welcome everybody, Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 9. So this is the season finale of uh, this set of classes. Hopefully we'll continue at some time in February. Thank you guys for, you know, tuning in every week, sticking with us. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it so much, this this ability, you know, to to speak with all you so deeply about such important ideas. And, you know, I was thinking about it today. There's like a, a Buddhist idea that they say, you know, it's uh, there's nothing to learn. There's nothing to learn. What does that mean? There's nothing to learn. It's like a funny thing for me to say, like, I'm here. Isn't this a class? Isn't there something to learn? There's nothing to learn. There's no one to learn. And, and there's nothing to teach in a way. And the reason I say that is because that's not my goal here. My goal here is not to, to give you a piece of knowledge that you can claim or that you can own. But instead, what I'm trying to, to do is to open your heart, to open the way that you experience the world, to be something out of more presence, something out of more of a, a peaceful place in yourself that you could find, that you could tap into. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to begin with us. It's going to begin with peace. And, you know, we're, as we go throughout our lives with this amount of peace, we're able to, to watch it grow. We're able to watch it spread to other people. And it's a beautiful thing. So that's really the gift that, that I hope uh, I'm able to give to you in some way. Um, and it's not about achieving anything. It's just about being present and being mindful and being at peace with each other and enjoying each other's company. So with that said, we could uh, start off with some of the quotes. So Walt Whitman said... I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. So we, every week we talk about this idea that everything almost contains everything else. That's the idea of panentheism. God is in everything and everything is in God. Um, well, you can look in any grain of sand, any blade of grass in this uh, you know, quote, and you can see everything that that implies. We've spoken about this week after week, but I think it's amazing that Walt Whitman was in touch with this. He said, uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh comments, he says, these words are not philosophy. They come from the depths of his soul. He also said, another quote from Walt Whitman, I am large, I contain multitudes. And it's that feeling and that experience that's at the very core of the mystical experience. That mysticism is this idea that I am larger than I thought I was. I'm not limited like I thought I was. And when you are able to take that perspective in any given moment, and like we said last week, if we're caught up in the idea of a lifespan, if we're caught up in the idea and the concept of myself as a separate person, as a separate character in this grand scheme of things, if I'm caught up in that, I'm not really in touch with the grandeur of the entire universe. And when are you, and when can you, and when is it possible to be in touch with that totality in this moment right now? Because the second you're buying into a storyline, it's gone. But the moment that you arrive now, you can give yourself at least the opportunity to not get lost in what so many people are getting lost in. Another quote from Walt Whitman. This is something I actually quoted in my personal statement in, uh, in, to get into to residency. And looking back now, you know, some people's, it, it could sound narcissistic, um, which I hope it doesn't. You know, and this is not, this is not my words, this is Walt Whitman's words. Anyways, if anybody says narcissistic, it's him, and I don't think he was. But I think the sad part is, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but when you're dwelling on the channel of ego, you can read something like this and say, hey, look how egotistical this is. When you're dwelling on the channel of love and expansion and connectedness, you see the wisdom of these words. And here they are. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. All seems beautiful to me. Whoever denies me, it shall not, be, it shall not trouble me. Whoever accepts me, he or she shall be blessed. And shall bless me. So I just loved this. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. 
So often we focus on this totality of everything. We have, we feel like we need to contend with the evils of the world. And, you know, like we always say in Yesh- from Yeshaya, Hashem creates evil. And what does that mean? And we're always getting caught in that. But there's something interesting that happens to a lot of these people that experience this oneness. They say, yes, I know. I understand that there's suffering and I understand that there's evil and I understand all that. But I can't explain it. There's just something about this oneness that's all good. And I know that makes no sense because you can't have good without evil. But for some reason, it feels like when when I'm in this state of oneness, it's all good. And that's just something to chew on and digest for ourselves. So I hinted at this a minute ago about dwelling, the difference between dwelling on the channel of love versus the channel of ego. I notice it in myself. When are the times that I'm triggered by someone's ego? When is that? That happens when I'm dwelling in my own ego, of course. But when I, so, so the amazing thing about dwelling in that egotistical mindset, it's not even an egotistical, just the ego mindset where you're seeing yourself as separate and everyone else is separate. It's so easy to view everything as selfish. And this is a true perspective. I don't want to discount it. It's a 100% true perspective that you look at all of reality and you say to yourself, even the beauty and even the good and even the things that seem loving are totally and utterly selfish. And that's just the nature of the world. And you know what? It's true. It's a law of biology. The, sh- the selfish gene, and you know, there's no such thing as a truly selfless good deed. That's 100% true from this perspective. Even the most loving things could be interpreted as ego and selfish. But then when you dwell on the channel of love, which is an equally valid, if not more valid, but I'll say equally valid channel, not only do the loving things look and appear to be loving as they truly are, but even the egotistical things, even the selfish things, even the evil, somehow, some way reveals itself to be love. And it's like they say at the end of a play, this is the best analogy I've ever heard. It's from Alan Watts. He says at the end of a play, first the hero bows and the audience, everybody claps. And then comes the villain. He takes a bow and Everybody claps. It's the same thing. Why is that? Well, it's this mysterious thing. For some reason, that's what's going on at the very core of reality. And that's the channel of love to realize that at the end of the day, that was me too. And all of this was me. Even the ugly stuff, even the the, the people and the things that I wanted to push away and totally dissociate myself from. So I was talking to somebody today. We have these amazing people in the psych unit who used to be patients on the psych unit. And then after they, you know, stabilize themselves and whatever's going on for them, they come back and they are what's called peer counselors. They're representatives for the patients on the unit. And they're almost like psychologists on the unit, treating patients, helping us, talking with us, part of the team. It's an incredible thing. I spoke to an amazing peer counselor today on my unit. And she told me about, you know, all these experiences that she had. And, you know, just I spoke to her very deeply about all these things and why I went into psychiatry. And I told her, you know, when someone when you have a a spiritual pull and you start getting into this idea of or really not just the idea, the experience of the mystical, you can't help yourself. But think to yourself, I need to redouble my efforts to now go help people. Because every person you see, every person you meet, you say, that's me. Well, I remember growing up as a kid, it was so easy to look at someone suffering and to say that was their free will. They chose certain things, became a crack addict, and they dug their own grave. So I'll see you. You know, you don't deserve my time. You don't deserve my compassion. You deserve my judgment and that of society. And there's so many people you'll meet today who that's their rationalization for cutting people out of their heart. But as I got older and I started to realize this stuff where every person I'm starting to see now, I can't help but see a part of myself in that. And that's, you know, the the irony is here. 
That's the most selfish thing ever. The only way I could really love someone is if there's a piece of myself in it. And yet that's true. And only when you accept that selfishness, do you really allow yourself to be fully loving? And you see another person who is suffering and you start to realize if I were in that circumstance, that would have been me. And that is me in some weird cosmic sense. And I almost imagine, I was telling this person today, I almost imagine to myself that every single person that exists at some point, either in the past, the future, whatever time is, I will live out their lifetime. I will reincarnate as every sentient being, every non-sentient being, somehow, some way, I will be that. So now me walking into this room, how would I want to speak to myself? This is like the ultimate of, uh, you know, do not unto others what you wouldn't want, want done unto yourself. Love your friend like you love yourself. Well, that idea. You're talking yes. about Yes. But um, or you could refer to Hitler. Mm-hmm. Do not do unto others. Ah, exactly. Right? But, but, you know, I have, I have an interesting issue. It's a very, very interesting issue. So, and I know I've been, I, I could. No, please. Uh, please. I'm, I like when you, when you, uh, I'm actually, specific, yeah. Well, what's on my mind at the moment, I have a Balat Chuba, mm-hmm. uh, a Jewish woman who basically, she has such incredible hate. She, it's like she went through, I don't know, I I would have to say like a a cranial, you know, intentional effort to forget, suppress Mm -hmm. what she went through. Yeah. So she basically does not recall. She thinks she instantly went from being what she thinks what well, well, she knows to be a you know, non-religious secular Jew as she grew up to being a religious Jew, mm-hmm. or so she thinks. Yeah. And because she doesn't, she doesn't even know the things she's saying to be wrong. So nonetheless, but she has this tremendous hate for other Jews. Imagine. And she thinks this is what Judaism is. Hey, wow. Hey, how are you? Good to see you, Mike. pull up a seat. Sit anywhere you like. Yeah. She has this hate because how are you? Long time no see, Rabbi Farfi Sheer. Why haven't you? <laughs> I don't know. I remember meeting you there. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yes. That is correct. But um, what I was saying was, so here she is. She sees everybody else struggling with the process. And and she doesn't see herself in it. She actually thinks she went like instantly. She turned on a light switch and there she was. She got to this position. And, and she has such... So what I'll say about that is, and I'll, I'll be brief because I want to move on, but no, I think, I just, no, it's beautiful. I, I, I think it's a great point. And what I'll say about that is, you know, when you, you, when you approach someone like that, the only thing that's, that's needed of you is compassion. No matter how much hatred and vitriol is coming out of somebody, for you to remain in peace and to be peace, that's the key. So we're gonna. I'm gonna quote well, you right yeah, now something about day. exactly that. Yeah, you. We'll, we'll discuss more after class because I have a lot to get through. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, thank you for asking. Um, but yeah, we'll 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 definitely discuss the in the after party. We'll discuss all the good stuff. Are we having a party? So, of party? course. No, it's not actually a party. I'm no, kidding. Okay. Yeah. So so this is from Tiknat Han. You know, very much to do with what you were just talking about. He says. In the peaceful moment, movement, sorry, in the peace movement, there is a lot of anger, frustration, and misunderstanding. People in the peace movement can write very good protest letters, but they are not so skilled at writing love letters. We need to learn to write letters to the Congress and to the president that they will want to read and not just throw away. The way we speak, the kind of understanding, the kind of language we use should not turn people off. The president is a person like any of us. Can the peace movement talk in loving speech, showing the way for peace? I think that will depend on whether the people in the peace movement can be peace. Because without being peace, we cannot do anything for peace. If we cannot smile, we cannot help other people smile. If we are not peaceful, then we cannot contribute to the peace movement. So exactly to your point, what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying here is that peace begins with me. We, we said this last week. And I begin with peace. I need to start with peace. 
So many people we know are sick of the injustices of the world. Well, so many people, you know, so, so many people are suffering. Everybody's got a gripe with something and someone. The problem is it's so easy to become self-righteous. And it's so easy to villainize the other side. But like MLK says, we don't need to meet hatred with hatred or violence with violence. We need to meet it with love. Havat hinam. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And when you're at peace, no matter what, and if you cultivate that interpersonal peace, no matter what, the, the hope is, and not even the hope, the now is that you're going to influence other people and it's going to spill over. It's going to overflow from you. So that's a beautiful idea. And, and even the idea of hope, it's so beautiful in the West, the way we talk about hope and hope I think is important, but it could also sometimes serve as a hindrance to being fully present with the now. So notice the hope that exists now. That's what I would say. I have, so I have a question. Please. Question yeah, yeah. Today I saw the video. There was these people holding up signs, um, very anti-Semitic things on the highway. Yeah. And the cops were trying to be nice to the guy. Oh, you know, we're just making sure that you're not violating free speech. And I go, it's okay, whatever. And like the guy was like, okay, whatever. You're just still standing there doing his thing. Then another girl comes. She goes, get this stuff down. Take it out. She takes it out. She's like, how dare you do this? And I think I agree more with the approach of the girl in that case because the guy was holding up. The guy was holding up very hateful things. Mm -hmm. And like he needed to be, I feel like he needed to be rebuked in mm -hmm. a harsh way. Like you can't be peaceful there if you want to make sometimes. It's a very tough thing. Change. It's a very tough thing. But do you think he learned his lesson? That's the key. Do you think you really. So I, exactly. Exactly. I think that holding up signs. Yeah. And, and if you, them. if you approach him with peace, maybe he'll learn peace. Maybe after years and years of everybody being peaceful towards him, he'll give up his desire. Maybe he's reacting to something in his life. It's a great point. I don't, I don't have the answer directly because every situation is specific. And I don't think this means that we shouldn't ever fight a war in self-defense. I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying, though, in general, though, if we can really try our best I'll tell you what to be at peace. Yeah. Is if somehow uh, a Jew saved his life. Or if he had a mm -hmm. real positive life-changing interaction with a Jew. Mm -hmm. Something I try to do in my life is that I'm in a school where they're likely anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. They're very, you know, liberal and left and very whatever. And so I, I make it a point, A, to, to let them know that I'm Jewish, but B, to be a good person. So right. When anti-Semitism really rises and have people, they have, well, you know, maybe... They, but I know, I know this one Jew that was my, the only Jew in my school that I knew. Mm -hmm. He was a good person, you know. Yeah. That right. has a lasting effect. Well, right. it's for sure. Yeah. But you know what? I deal with a lot of Jews, mm -hmm. mostly Jews, and I can't tell you, I deal with also Jews who are Jewish anti-Semites. Yeah. And it's very, very sad. In fact, that Rabbi Park is here. We're not naming names. Mm -hmm. We have a gentleman there. He is so anti-Semitic. He hates religious Jews. He believes he's there for the food. He comes there just for the food. He believes that the Orthodox Jews, maybe the conservative too, but they created this whole thing on the internet, everything that 6 million Jews died during the Holocaust. Wow. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, two guys, like, yeah. so regardless of the specifics, I think the point is the way to approach people like this is by being peace. That's what I've, you know, stuck to. And, and don't allow their lack of peace to affect your inner peace. No, no, no. You, 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 yeah. you have to live your life. You exactly. To, you try to do, uh, you try to show the world, give the world the light. Yes. Uh, what it means to be Jewish. So that you effectively create a Kedush showing the world, hey, Jewish people are wonderful people because we're following the Torah. Mm -hmm. because Amen. We're exactly. God. So there's no hashash, what we are or not what we are. But at the same time, you yes. can't really silence. You know, if you start silencing um, anti-Semitism, if you relegate it somewhere else, then it gets hidden. You want everyone to see it. Mm -hmm. You want everyone to see the, the, the how stupid it is. Yeah. Because like people get on TV or in the media somewhere. And start saying the Holocaust never happened. Yeah, it's absurd. I mean, and but honestly, if you speak to this gentleman, Jewish guy, it's a, he would it's tell a shame. You, he would tell you, yeah, but 
The concentration camps, Jewish people paid to have it built. Oh my God. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. We bought the land and we had it built. We set up, it's just yeah. like we, you know, mm -hmm. we were rich, rich people. It's a, it's a shame. Very, very peace. Yeah. Be peace. That's really the way I'll leave it. At, at, you know, and we'll move on to the next one. But it's, I agree. I agree that it's terrible but to see. That's yeah. what we do. That's why mm -hmm. we don't throw him out of the shoe. Yeah. He sits there. He'll say nasty things about religious shoes. Okay. But the point is, it's Ahabat Kinam. Yeah. And that's a person who's lost. And that's me in another lifetime. If I grew up in his circumstances, I would have been just as lost. That's the perspective to have. And when you realize that would have been me and that is me. You start having much more but compassion. Grace of God there, exactly. Yeah, Beautiful. That's what it is. Beautiful. Next story is uh, one of these Zen stories. I love these because they they really kind of they take. So what I was doing so far has a very moral standpoint to it, and that's beautiful. This part, you know, the thing I love about Zen and Taoism is that it's not moralizing at you. It's instead, you know, using your intelligence, and it's a skill to build to sneak your way into this moment and drop your ego so these zen koans are supposed to shock you the same way a joke gives you a spontaneous belly laugh these zen koans will shock you into enlightenment one day if not right now so goso said when you meet a zen master on the road you cannot talk to him you cannot face him with silence what are you going to do this is his riddle you meet this zen master you can't say anything, and you can't not say anything. What do you do? That's the, you can't not say anything? Yeah. What do you do? Wait, wait, you can't. I don't understand. You need a Zen master on the road, you can't say anything? This is not. the riddle. The riddle is you can't meet him with words, and you can't face him with silence. What are you going to do? So listen to Mumon's oh, you comment. You can't face yeah. him with words, and you can't face him with silence? Yeah. Start screaming like a monkey. Like, okay, words. good. So Mumon's comment, he says, in such a case, if you can answer him intimately, your realization will be beautiful. But if you cannot, you should look about without seeing anything. And then he writes this poem. Meeting a Zen master on the road, face him neither with words nor silence. Give him an uppercut and you will be called one who understands Zen. An uppercut like a punch? Yeah. Oh my god. I really love that. So so take this with a grain of salt. I don't want one second. I don't want you actually punching people. That's not the point. The point is uh, you know, you got to understand this culture and uh there's like the famous story of uh one of these guys who wanted to learn. I think we mentioned it last week. He wanted to learn, you know, the the art of being a samurai. And he went to the master and uh, the master said, uh, "Oh, you're not worthy" or something along those lines. And for 10 years he had him just cooking things for him. 10 years. And then all of a sudden, after 10 years, the, the, the master took a wooden, a wooden sword and smacked the student over the head with it. And then and he's like, oh, what'd you do that for? And that was it. The master just walked away. And then randomly, sporadically, the master would come and try to whack him. And after a while, he, his reflexes became so good. And then a couple of years later, he became like the best swordsman that they ever had. You know, and the, the point of it is that there's, there's something about action and sponta spontaneity involved with zen that's so amazing and another story that i really love that i saw today um there was uh the, the one of these uh you know temples where all these people would meditate and the the head guru wanted to give his guruship to uh another guy so he said um who can tell me what this is without saying it in words and and he's he's talking about this uh this like porcelain or ceramic vase and the one of the like main gurus in training one of these big head honcho guys he comes up he says it's not a wooden shoe and then the 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 cook of this temple walks by and he kicks it over with his uh with his foot and it cracks to pieces he says you're the new guru the cook became the guru and that's the point you know like uh there's there's another story of like one of these guys that went uh, that uh, the guru and the student and um, this, the, 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 the guru says to the student, what is this? He's pointing at a, at a branch. So the, the student picks up the branch and he hits the guru over the head with it. He says, you got it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because the point is, it's not words, 
reality isn't words like you always like to say, Mike. Reality is this. And, and there's a way that Zen is trying to bring us in touch with that. That's all I'll say about that. Here's another story. Um, a Zen student told Uman, brilliancy of Buddha illuminates the whole universe. Before he finished the phrase, Uman asked, you are reciting another's poem, are you not? Yes, answered the student. You are sidetracked, said Uman. Right, so basically so far what happened, he's saying this beautiful thing, oh, the, the light of Buddha illuminates the whole world, basically. And he's saying, oh, you're just trying to quote me some guy, right? He says, you're sidetracked. Afterwards, another teacher, Shishin, asked his pupils, at what point did that student go off the track? So Mumon's comment is this, if anyone perceives Uman's particular skillfulness, he will know at what point the student was off the track. And he will be a teacher of man and devas. If not, he cannot even perceive himself. So then he writes this poem, when a fish meets the fish hook, if he is too greedy, he will be caught. When his mouth opens, his life already is lost. To me, that means the moment you opened your mouth, you were already sidetracked. The moment you spoke out of a desire to explain what the world is, you already lost it. It already escaped you. So that's why when you're speaking about these things, you have to know in advance, there's nothing I can ever really say about the world. It's all just total nonsense compared to the experience of the world itself. Yeah. The words in scenario, but they have to be because they get you to think like in terms of concepts at the end of the day the concepts are all futile at like grasping actual reality yes yes i agree and and like we always said it could be like a finger pointing at the moon right. and you or follow where they're leading you to I have a koan for you please this is finger pointing to itself oh <laughs> you're so good wow <laughs> I love it. All right, you got to send it to us. I think also, like, I think the words are, are useful in, to some capacity. Like, just don't get caught looking at the finger. Mm -hmm. you no, know, but they, they guide you to look exactly, at the so, exactly. Words are not useless, right? They're not because it seems a little bit like that sort of where they where they are. They're like ineffable. There's you know, it's true because there's it's so easy to get lost in your own words and your own enjoyment of just the words. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy speaking from experience about this. And, you know, like, I'm saying because I've made that mistake so many times, you know, where I get so involved in the philosophical process, in the dialogue, mm -hmm. in the discourse, that I'm allowing reality to pass me by. And I'm not being fully present. So that I, I, I do my best. When I approach this class, it's like almost like a very unique thing that I get to share with you guys is trying to speak more spontaneously just through presence. And you listen to a lot of these guys, Thich Nhat Hanh embodies that. He embodies that idea of when you're just so fully present, the words flow mm -hmm. so beautifully. So did you ever read any about like the Jewish meditations? Uh, like I love I the Arya Kaplan's book. Yeah, Arya Kaplan has a great book. And we're about to actually dive into uh, some Kabbalah. But yeah, I want to hear. So is there anything in common from what you're learning in Buddhism? Mm -hmm. Ah, so that's exactly, you asked that at the perfect time. Because the second half of this class, and I had Mickey Kramer in mind with a lot of this stuff, is about study of Torah from a Kabbalistic perspective and what's so special about it. So in Judaism, we say, Hashem, to you, silence is praise. The, the Peshat of the Pasuk is, Tehillah is dumiya. It's fitting to you, but the midrashic interpretation is is like being silent. Exactly. Harambam says that ideally we should never have had korbanot, right? Because it's impossible to go from one extreme to another overnight. So Hashem gave us a concession of korbanot, and then he goes further in the Morene Bukhim. He says, "In the God for the perplexed, ideally we shouldn't even have tefillah." We shouldn't even have prayer with words. Ideally, we should have silent meditation. But because we're limited human beings, 
Hashem made the concession that we're allowed to say words. So to me, there's so much in Judaism about this. The unfortunate part is after years and years in diaspora, we lost the prophetic tradition that used to exist and this Beneha Nevi'im school. So that's the shame of, of all of this, you know. And, and so now we'll, we'll dive into... Um, well, you know that yeah. basically it's written that, they, that Hashem really doesn't want Karbala. Mm-hmm. He prefers Chesed. Uh, exactly, the Nevi'im, beautiful, exactly, yeah, 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 100%. And that does replace the Karbanatic as well. Exactly. That's why all the Kamanim should be doing Chesed. Amen, I think everyone why should, yeah. should be doing Chesed. Yeah, 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 exactly. Amen. Yeah, yeah, that's what Beautiful, that's a great, great point, and I, I agree with you. Uh, so let's let's see what the Mikubalim say about study of Torah. To start off, they say, greater is the study of Torah than the rebuilding of the temple. That's in Masechet Megillah. Greater than the rebuilding of the temple. During Torah study, the Shekhinah descends upon you. That's what it says in Bikabal. If you learn Torah in the right way, the Shekhinah is descending upon you. Baruch Haba. The Hachamim talk about Torah as a rendezvous point of the divine and the human. And if you learn Torah in that way, and it's you're removing your ego as you're studying, it's almost like Hashem is the one speaking these words of Torah to himself. We always quote that idea. We love God with the love that God gave us to love him. When you're removing your ego, everything is God. And it's just this flow of everything into each other. So you're pouring your coffee. It's not really you're pouring your coffee. It's God's pouring the God into the God with the God. And, and I know it, it doesn't make logical sense and you got to be careful and, you, you know, 100%, but it's just a, a perspective to take when you're approaching God really is to fully so much remove yourself that all that you see is God. And, and when you learn Torah in that way, it really becomes a rendezvous point of the divine and the human. In the mystical intimacy, they say the studier of Torah is compared to an intimate lover with God. The Torah is compared to a spouse of every member of Am Yisrael, and you're studying Torah to consummate the marriage with Torah. The grandson of the Baal Shem Tov said, when a person studies the Torah for its own sake, to observe and to perform it, then he brings all his limbs close to their source whence they originated and were generated, namely the Torah. Who's the, who's the, do you know the name? I don't know the name of it. I think he's a future rabbi. Yeah, no, he is. He is. It says it in the book. I could, I could find a few. And he says, and he becomes identical to the Torah, like the unification of man and woman. You become identical to Torah. What does that mean? It's an experience to have as you're learning Torah. It's a beautiful thing. The mystic scholar divests the Torah of her garments. Like we say all the time, Hashem, you spread out light, like a cloth, like a garment. Well, the mystic scholar is supposed to strip down the Torah of its clothing in a loving way. The Zohar says, after complete intimacy, she reveals herself face to face, which is a sexual euphemism, and tells him all her hidden secrets, all the hidden ways since primordial days secreted in her heart. Now he is a perfect human being, a master of the house, a Baal Habayit. So, you know, you, you talk about Moshe Rabbeinu, Bechol Betine Emanhu, when uh, Moshe is stood up for by God. But there's something about being so intimately connected with Limud Torah, that when you do it in the right way, with no ulterior motives, really just for the sake of connection with Hashem, that it starts to reveal itself, and you, you become called a Baal Habayit. There's an analogy to eating. So, oh, yes. Bite. I'm thinking, what's the bite? Well, I have a, I'm a good one. Yeah. Mikdash. Mikdash. And, and the idea that... And the Mishkan is like a, is like a meditative space, mm-hmm. almost, that you're entering into and joining with. In a lot of ways, that's beautiful. It's, I agree 100%. Um, so what's the analogy of eating? And, and we're talking all about this joining with Torah. So you're consuming the Torah, but at the same time, you're being consumed by the Torah. You're achieving union with and becoming the Torah. 
somehow through the learning process, you're joining with it in a very strange but a beautiful way. And that's there's a pasuk zot torat ha'adam, and the the interpret the mystical interpretation of that is when you learn Torah, zot torat ha'adam, the Torah becomes the Adam. It becomes one with you. Your identity shifts from your ego to this knowledge of Torah and relationship with God. I think really that's what's meant here. The written Torah is this is Torah Shebikhtav is rooted in Tiferet, in a specific one of the ten sefirot. The oral Torah, Torah Shebe'apeh, is rooted in Shekhinah. So you have the male and female elements coming together. You bring about the consummation by bringing the written word to life. What that means is the written Torah is almost like a man without a wife. But the second you open your mouth to engage with it, to bring the oral part of the Torah to life, you're consummating the marriage between the male and female elements of it. The whole of reality could be seen in terms of male and female elements, right? Everything in the whole world could be seen that way, a balance of yin and yang, male and female. There's different channels and different levels upon which this can be seen and experienced to exist. One of them is with Limud Torah and with these Sefirot. And your participation in the learning process brings about this beautiful finding of the male with the female. Connection. It's a connection, exactly. And like Shid Hashidim is all about that, right? That it's the it's the, the the man looking for the woman, the woman looking for the man. The solution to that is simply sit with God and be with God. And learn Torah in a way that you are with God. Instead of allowing the Torah to be something feeding your ego or the Torah to be something that is like, you know, so far removed from anything to do with this moment. Instead of that, instead of an intellectual exercise, Make the Torah into an intimate way of knowing Hashem's creation. And I think when it becomes a head-heavy and a cerebral exercise, it's, it's like Sudoku. It's, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're looking for a real relationship, it might not be that at that point. That's the question that I think a lot of us have to ask ourselves when we learn Torah. Menachem Rekanati, one of these mystics, said, God is incomplete without the Torah. The Torah is not something outside of God, and God is not outside of the Torah. Therefore, the mystics stated that God is the Torah. Wow. If God is infinity, right, then God includes the Torah. And in a way, when you're studying Torah, you're joining with God. And we're going to see something even more audacious coming up. But, but this is the whole idea of panentheism, right, that God is in everything and everything is in God. And if you're able to see that while studying, you're going to experience that. Here Now, here's this. There's this, this talking about of entering into the letters of the Torah, into the text itself. So, yeah, you probably know the story that the discovery of PCR, we all do these, you know, COVID PCR, PCR is you know, polymerase chain reaction. It's a way of expanding the DNA of something in order to see what it is. And the inventor of it, how did he figure it out? You know the story? It's an unbelievable story. He took a microdose of LSD. I promise you. And he was pondering this question for months and months and years, maybe. And then the LSD microdose, he pictured himself walking along the DNA. A strand of DNA. A strand of DNA, unzipping it, adding the nucleotides, adding the enzymes, and watching as it unfolded. Came out of his microdose, he said, I figured it out, and he invented PCR. I imagine learning Torah at this level to be almost like walking along the letters. And, and I have to be careful with how I say this, but the, 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 boundary, the, the, boundary between, the boundary between meaningfulness and meaninglessness at a certain point become, becomes blurred. And I don't mean either of those in a bad way or a good way, meaningfulness, meaninglessness. You start to read the Torah as a real song. We say the Torah is a shirah hazot. And like the Zen people say, you could study Zen with anything. You could study Zen with the Bible. 
you could study Zen with Alice in Wonderland, you know, the, the gathering gimples that, you know, goaded the goats, you know, I don't know. There's a way of sounding funny and fun and even patients that I have, what they start to do is something called clanging. It's a sign of, you know, we, and we, we, we say, oh, that's a symptom, but there's something beautiful about it where they hear something. You say, oh, I'm, uh, I'm going to pet the dog. They say dog, mog, bog. And then they like, they, that's just, that's the way they hear. They, they're not hearing meanings of words anymore. They're hearing sounds. They're hearing the music behind the words. And the Torah is compared to a shira, I think, for that reason, part, partially. Um, also that you remember it. Um, the letters of the Torah are specific rendezvous points with God. And we know that Rabbi Akiva is called Tag Vetag. Yeah. Doesn't that just reduce the Torah to being Dog Bagman? I'm not trying to say that's why I said I have to be careful is I'm not trying to say it's only that, but I'm saying there's always a two perspective thing going on with the mystical stuff where on the one hand, it's, it's that, but on the other hand, it's extremely meaningful for this plane of reality uh, and to help us determine how to create a society. I think that like, just to say it's whatever, like the way that you can interpret it in a more positive way, I think is that, okay, maybe the words, they mean something. Yeah. But even without their meaning, the words themselves is a connection to us. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. Just the actual the song of it. So exactly. Song of it. Yeah. No, yes. Whereas, like, kind of what you're saying would kind of say, like, okay, there's no meaning to it, and that leaves it meaningless. It's like, no, yeah. maybe it's anchored somewhere. Yeah, it's like right. the people who read Taylim, even they don't understand what the heck it means. Right. But there's a beauty to reading Taylim, you know, just because of the sound of it and the, the experience. Like it yes, no, just the experience. Very beautiful. I agree. There's a, there's a great story that this reminded me of um, that Ram Das's guru, his name is Ramaharaji. And before he died, he said, I'm giving away my personal diary to one specific person. His diary. Imagine that this like unbelievable guru of Ram Das giving away his diary. And the student who gets the diary, this, this you know, very... Uh, uh, you know, uh, well-trained uh, woman in the in the ashram. She gets the diary. After Maharaji dies, she opens it up. She reads every single page. It says, "Ram, Ram, 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 Ram," which is the name of of one of their like main gods. You know, and the point of it being, that's all there is. At the end of the day, you could use all these words. You could say everything you want. But really, all there is to think about and all there is to say is rom, 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 rom. Isn't that like a word people use uh, to focus on in meditation? Yes, like a mantra. mantra. I think those are extremely helpful. Some of the most beautiful ones I heard recently from Thich Nhat Hanh are, you know, you take a breath and you say present moment, breath out, wonderful moment. It's a beautiful thing. Or, you, you, you know, you're noticing uh, yes, exactly. I have arrived. I am home. Or even with difficult emotions, you say, as I breathe in, I notice the anger. As I breathe out, I notice the anger. Last night at 11 something, I don't know if you heard this, Mike. There's always this guy that shoots fireworks late at night to wake up the whole community. How do I know? I know somebody from Shomrim who lives right around the corner from me who actually went and found this guy. Some old guy who is very resentful of the community because he says he doesn't like how they, the, the bus drivers honk the horns early in the morning. So to get back at the community, he periodically will light fireworks very late at night to wake people up, sometimes at 2, 3, 4 a.m. Oh my Last night, you know, Baruch Hashem, it was only at uh, 1130. It was horrible. And, and, and I felt the anger welling up in me. I'm dichit, I'm tired. I have, I have to work the next day. This is last night. And I'm listening right before this. I was listening to Thich Nhat Hanh talking about how to handle difficult emotions. And I said, the more angry I'm going to get, the less I'm going to be able to sleep. So I said, as I breathe in, I feel the anger. As I breathe out, I feel the anger. And I and I, slowly it dissipated. Now, I was just in the banyas in the Russian bathhouse. So that helped, you know, with the meditating in the sauna, steam room, cold plunge. So it's so it's so good when you're able to realize like, OK, you know what, this guy, that's me in another lifetime. Like I said earlier, that guy over there who is so resentful, he needs to shoot up fireworks. I'm just going to work on my own peace right now. What an opportunity to work on peace. That's what I tried. 
Um, it's not always easy. We all have those specific things that trigger us and it's for us to explore like why and how and how do I heal this? Um, there's also this idea, the name of God is God. And the Torah is one long name of God. This is a mystical idea. It's pretty mysterious. The name of God wow. is God. That if you're able to, and I, uh, like my rabbi says that he is starting to figure out the way that they would meditate with this name of God and how they would chant it. And you get lost in that enough, you start to realize that is God in a certain way. And the entire Torah being one long name of God, that's, a, that's another way of saying, I think we were just saying earlier, that move, you, move, move yourself away a little bit from the specific meanings of each word. Move yourself closer to the musical nature of everything. And that's the idea. It's all one long name of God. It's all one song to put before B'nai Israel. The Torah is compared to the Holy of Holies by the Zohar, out of the Mishkan, inner sanctum, in meditation, according to Rabbi Salman Di Sassoon, which we mention all the time, that's very similar to this idea. That the Torah is the Holy of Holies. The Torah is this thing that when you meditate enough on it, you enter into each layer. And that's the idea of the Etz Haim, hidden in, the, in Gan Eden. That's guarded by what? It's guarded by Kirubim, by cherubs. Where else do we know Kirubim? At every interface of Kedushan and Mishkan, on the Yeriot, on the Parochet, and on the Aron itself, on the, on the Kaporet. There's Kirubim on all of them. You can look in the Peshat. It's in the Peshat. It's unbelievable. And there's also three separations in Bereshit, and, I, and Rabbi Foreman compares them. Light and dark co- corresponds to the, the third one. Um, yeah, the separation of waters, which is crazy. So the, light and dark is energy. Space is the separation of waters. Corresponds to the second one. And the third one is time, the me'orot, lehavdil. You're saying that they will land from water also? Say it again. No, but it doesn't say the word lehavdil. Only when it says the word lehavdil. Oh, yeah. These correspond to different areas of the, of the Mishkan. Oh, oh probably in the Mishkan. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, and it's, it's telling you, in your meditation, entering into the, the very inner, inner sanctum, you're going to have to pass by these kerubim to get to the Torah. The same way you had to pass by the kerubim, which were lishmore derech etz ha'chaim, which is the Torah. So there's something very deep going on here where it's like, if you understand the message of the Kirubim, you're going to understand the message of how to bypass them and get to the Torah. And the answer, I think, is drop your ego because they have this fiery flaming sword that's blocking your path. They won't block you if you're not somebody. Exactly. And they won't block you if you realize that I can move a little quicker than their flaming sword because it's not a wall. It's like the propeller of a plane, like Rabbi Sutton once told me. That's when you realize that it's something moving. Yeah, very brilliant, really brilliant. So I think that's just such an interesting idea. The ever-turning sword. Exactly. It's almost like it runs on its own, its own energy. The Maharal says, Maharal Miprag, the Torah has two distinct dimensions. From one, it has a relationship to humankind. But from the other, it enjoys no relationship with humankind but only with the supernal realm. So compare this to the question of whether life's events are simply empty phenomena or are they totally meaningful? We keep coming back to this paradox. Is the Torah this meaningful document in a, in a practical way or is it a shida and a musical thing? Are these events of life, you know, like uh, when, when something happens, am I supposed to psychoanalyze myself and analyze and analyze? To some degree, yes. But to some degree, it's also empty phenomena rolling on that I have no idea what's going on. And I shouldn't overly interpret it. And when I don't balance these two things, I, you know, I start to get crazy in my mind. So when I'm able to balance these two things, I'm able to be in balance inside. And the Torah itself can be seen as having a relationship upwards and downwards in that same kind of a way. That's the way I read that. And there's oh, yeah. performance. Yeah. Uh, 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 please. Uh, yeah. Please, please. Uh, this comes from the Tanya, which is in... Uh, Highly debated, highly controversial in, in our community, mm. but regardless. So he says that, um, so they say it's, it's like a baggage, right? It's like when, when you do the mitzvah, when you learn to act, like you're wearing it, right? And they explain it, they always explain that the baggage. The reason, the way, the reason it's useful in that way is that, similar to how you said earlier, is that while you're immer- immersed in Torah, it's like you're wearing the baggage. So now when I speak about Michael or Michael, 
I'm not speaking about Michael without the jacket. I'm saying Michael with the jacket. Michael mm. in, in, with everything he's wearing. So in, in effect, the jacket becomes a part of Michael. Mm. So, right? That's the first thing that you said of how the Torah in a way becomes you. Yes. Right? But kind of like you said, it goes both ways. Mm. So this is what I thought you were going to say. Well, um, that you become the Torah. Yes. And, and, and Hashem really is Hashem. So like, Incredible. Hashem... In a way, you 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 become Hashem by immersing yourself in His clothing right? mm-hmm. and wearing His clothes. But then, by default, He becomes you. And like very. And that's, the, that's the equivalent of that that I've heard is, instead of making your ego into God, make God into your ego. Like they say in Pirkei Avot, It's the same exact yeah, idea. And it's, it's such a beautiful way of looking at this, which is there's something about the, the merging with God and something about the, the communion and whatever you want to call it. And it exists in so many different traditions. But I think this is what it's really about. It's about you cannot do it. It has to come from grace. It has to come almost by accident, by serendipity, as a surprise. The, and the moment you fully give up is the moment that it'll happen. But you can't trick yourself into giving up because that's you. <laughs> so you have to actually genuinely give up. And that's the hardest thing. And not, it, it doesn't have to come from a place of like forcing me, you know, with a, something around my neck. It could come from a place of love. It could come from a place of trust. And I think that's the best place for it to come from. But like we always say, it's like a, it's a hiding and a seeking. And you'll, you'll, do this, you'll merge back when you're ready. And when I say when you're ready, I mean when God's ready. <laughs> so it's an interesting thing. Um, performance of finite physical deeds can lead one to an apprehension of the infinite God. There's something amazing here also about the relationship of the infinite and the finite, where what you're doing in a finite realm could have infinite implications. And when you start to see the connections and the, the way that every single scene that you'll ever see implies the rest of the universe in space and time, you start to realize how your performance of a mitzvah really is infinite. It's an incredible thing. The Maharal says, by means of the Torah, the celestial and terrestrial are joined. By means of the Torah, Israel may cleave to God and may be liberated from the conditions of the material world. By means of the Torah, the human being realizes his separate intellect, Sechel Nivdal, the highest spiritual element in the human being, distinct from matter. Then he becomes a perfect and beneficent creature, worthy of existence. The perfection of the human essence, therefore, only occurs by means of the Torah. There is no other means by which to attain it. I think that's incredible. I think he's saying exactly what we're trying to say, which is that there's this blurring of the lines that happens when we enter into Torah study in the right frame of mind. Underline, there's no other way to attain it. It's yeah. Frame of reference. Yes, uh, yes. So that's the... You can't find it in the other philosophies the same mm-hmm. way you find it in Torah, right? That, that seems to be what he's saying. And that's, you know, I read that and I said, you know, I, I, I hear what he's saying. That's a tough one for me. To be very fully honest, you know, I had a, a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, I put it anyway. I'm going to be fully honest. And I, I I was thinking about it a lot. And I had this great conversation with uh, this Christian kid, Iraqi Christian kid on my OBGYN rotation a couple of years ago when I was a student. We had this very deep religious conversation. And I was trying to say, like, you know, Rabbi Sachs, the dignity of difference, that Christianity is true for you. I think you should be a good Christian. Islam is true for that guy. He should be a good Muslim. And Judaism is true for me. I should be a good Jew. And he wouldn't have it. And he said, Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. And I said, but, you know, when in, in psychotherapy, we have what's called content and process. We have like the, the superficial stuff that's going on. And the process is really the underlying deeper stuff. I said, we can agree on all the deeper stuff. We don't have to agree about the superficial. Did Jesus do this miracle? Did Jesus do that? Was he actually the literal son of God and only him? And, da, 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 da. and it's like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be the guy that's saying Judaism is, is the only way for everybody or for me. even. I think Judaism for me personally is 
a necessary part of who I am, and it needs to co- continue to be that, 100%. But I don't think that Judaism is mutually exclusive from everything else that exists. And we know, like, more accepting traditions and, like, saying that Abraham sent Manot and sent presents to the East. And that's a lot of the Abrahamic tradition exists there. Or Yitro, Yitro being from Midian, who is a child of Abraham. And it says, um, Hashem is Lirson Shocheni Seneh. Hashem is the one who was Shochen in the Seneh even from before. You know, there's a lot of ways. What you're saying is 100% true. Let's just say one thing that occurred Mm -hmm. to me about in this conversation as as, as an answer. And I think it has to do with Amalek. Mm. And uh, I heard Rabbi Joey Dweck explain it this way. He said Amalek acknowledges God's existence. Mm. They don't acknowledge God's uh, interaction with yes. humankind. And that's why right after Kiyat Yamsuf, what, what was extremely important about that whole sequence mm. of events is Hashem did, you know, put his hand in the world and show it for everybody to see. I do, I do care, and I chose them, mm. or they chose me. Back. Yes, so, yes. So that's why, right after Kiyotzuv, I'm like, like, no, we refuse to believe that God would would help the people. So let's go attack that. that. And so, while the Eastern did get that from Abraham and etc. with Yitro and whatever, well, I would say that they may be lacking, and especially we've underlined this also in, in, in the Buddhism, is that. They would re- they would lack relationship with Hashem. Mm. You can see you're saying they knew about all the miracles and still chose not to have a relationship with Hashem. No, they well Hashem chose the Yehudim and he said I chose them and he showed it in Kiyat. Oh, okay, yes. Display of I'm I'm involved. I care. I'm here. And the, these are the people that 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 really they say the Jews chose Hashem. Okay, yeah. so how odd of God to choose the Jews? Not so odd the Jews chose God. Yeah. That's what yeah, they exactly. Said. Exactly. Well, the Jews did choose God. Yeah. So, and, and there are there are you know there's a term of the guy's name. He basically explained all the miracles. Yeah. 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 So who yeah. says it's really God? Mm. Yeah. It's uh, you have That's to have. A, it's a certain perspective. If from one perspective it's nature, from one perspective everything is God, including those miracles, and the timing and everything. You know, I don't have really a good way of putting it, but but yeah, I think I it's great. No, I want I want to hear more. That's beautiful. It's the relationship with Hashem. It's all about the relationship. Even with the Christians, they, a, a lot of their connection is through, you know, Mr. Jesus. But mm-hmm. not how often do you really they, they speak about the, yeah. the Holy Ghost? You know, yeah, they, it's about having a direct connection with the divine. Exactly. I agree. I totally agree. Beautiful. So let's uh, keep moving. We have a few more minutes left, I think. There's this idea in Kabbalah about repairing the divine within the Torah. What the heck does that mean? So you're called a collaborator of God in the reparation of the supernal cosmic and material worlds. You're becoming a co-author of the Torah with God, the same way you're becoming a co-creator with God in, the, in Maaseh B'Rashid. You're also becoming a co-author with God in writing the Torah. So the, wor- the world of God and the word of God, you're, you're a partner in both. The Maharal says, when we contemplate the works of God, we realize that everything God created requires tikkun and action. For example, that which is not full grown needs human tending. Mm-hmm. Scholars are those who, uh, who are to repair and bring out the completion hashlama of the Torah. Similar to the interaction between the Torah Shebikhtab and Torah Shebe'alpeh is this relationship that emerges from you you know, engaging with Torah. Like we say, the world is in your mind or in your brain and your brain is in the world. They, they are mutually arising. They inter-are, this idea of interbeing. One cannot be without the other. We quoted Adon Olam last week. It's that idea. It's, That's true. But when he created the world, there was something added to his glory. I think that's the idea here. Moshe Hayim Ephraim of Sudliko says everything depends upon the interpretation of the sages. Until they interpreted it, the Torah was not considered complete, but only half finished. It is the sages through their interpretations who make the Torah whole. Aywa, aywa, exactly. It's, it's all about that, that we have a part to play in the, this fractured world to heal the fractured world, like Rabbi Sachs would say, to gather those sparks from those shattered vessels. 
there's this idea of quote unquote making God through the performance of mitzvot. The writing of a Torah scroll by each individual is a way of making God literally through the Torah. That's the way they see it. And you can experience it that if you're you know, dipping in the mikveh every day, you're dedicating your life for however many days in a row to writing this Torah scroll. Could you imagine how beautiful and intimate that is? Attaching oneself to God by attaching to the letters of the Torah and then drawing down divine grace contained in these letters into himself and into the world. There's a way of engaging in Torah where the Torah becomes like this sinor, like this pathway for the light of the Torah to shine through, the light of God to shine through. Here's a quote from, uh, I think it's a student of the Baal Shem Tov. God contracted himself within the letters of the Torah by means of which God created the world. So God is hidden somewhere almost within the letters of the Torah. The Sadiq who studies the Torah without ulterior motives in a state of holiness draws downwards the creator within the letters of the Torah, just as at the moment of the creation. And by the pure utterances related to the study of the Torah, he draws down the divine within the letters. So just by learning Torah and by speaking these words in a state of holiness, you're drawing down God into the, crea- into the, into the words. And it's like you're at that moment of creation. So like my rabbi in Israel said that this, this idea of, of constantly unfolding past in the present moment. So don't do the vavaypuch thing. Just read it as, and then God will say this. Then God will say that. It's bringing you back. So when you're reading those words of the it's literally for you bringing you back to that moment of if you're doing this in a mystical meditative mindset. And that the same goes for anything you're reading about in the Torah. You're serving God with the words of Torah that you're reading of Vayikra, of serving God. You're in the story of Ben Esau and the Midbar. You're in the story of every single part of the Torah. Prophetic Kabbalah says combining the letters of the alphabet, which are the letters of the Torah, leads a person to prophecy. The biggest, the biggest uh, prophetic Kabbalist is Hacham he says, the purpose which is intended by the ways of Kabbalah is the reception of the prophetic, divine, and intellectual influx from God by means of the divine intellect and the causing of the descent and the blessing by means of the divine name on the individual and on the community. So he's saying, if you figure out specific ways of learning Torah and seeing the connections of the letters, which I'm not sure exactly the types of meditations. We had a class on it last year. But there's a way of really actually seeing the purpose of creation or the purpose of the divine within these combinations. They're saying it's through connecting the letters. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what he was doing. So he says, letters are a ladder by means of which the Sadiq can ascend to the upper realms by both to both attain the Vekut and draw down the divine influx. Do we have more interpretations on with the letters? I, I probably, if you read Hakam Abu Lafia himself. Yeah, yeah, he has tons of writings. I don't, I don't know the names of them, but I'm sure you could find them. He, tell, he tells you how to get Nebuah. He goes through it, step by step. And finally, when someone speaks with devotion and brings all his power within the letters, and cleaves to the light of the infinite that dwells in the letters and combines the letters as he likes, he will be capable of drawing down the influx, the blessing, and the good things. So with that, I leave you guys for this semester. Cliffhanger. That was the, the cliffhanger. Uh, if anybody could come back to me and tell me uh, how they do it, how they meditate with God, and uh, you know how they're able to use the Torah in this way as a gateway. And as a necessary bridge between the divine and the human, then we'll figure it out. You know, but there's really, in a, in a way, there's everything to figure out. And in a way, there's nothing to figure out. And when you balance those two, you're in that sweet spot. So, Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen. Amen. Yeah, please, I would love to hear. Just Rebetzin Young she would say that the Torah started for their shift for the days. Uh, meaning we need others. Mm, I love that. I heard another beautiful interpretation oh, wow. that if you look at the letter bet, 
What does it look like? It's something that's closed on three sides, but pointing forwards. That you have to, it's a house almost, but pointing forwards, that we always got to keep moving forward in Torah. I thought that was a beautiful why is, it, why is it back closed on this side and open this way? Because you're not supposed to ask for Oh, yes, that's the other interpretation. That's the other interpretation. That's the other, that's also in the Mishnah. That, that, why is yeah. it back closed on this side and open on this side? Because you're not supposed to even think or ask what was before. What was before, but a sheet you might want to ask, you know? It's just the. Yeah. yeah. By the way, great grandson was Rabbi Nachman. Yeah. Uh huh. That's who we were. Interesting. I think I it was somebody was, else. I, I could look it. That was a big one. Yeah. I could look it up for you. Dr. Nasser, what a pleasure to have you. Yes, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Vela. Yes. Keep me on your list. 100%. 100%. I'll let yeah, you know. Thank, yes. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. Just thank you. Sorry, I've been on mute the whole time, but oh, uh, nice. very nice end to the class. I appreciate it. It was so much fun. Take care, guys. Oh, about so anyway, I, I would be able to uh, send some time here.